be prepared for the plans to change. So make sure you've got a plan B, C, and D, you know, out there. So just in case everything changes because things are going to change. That's the one thing we know, things will change. listening to Legal Skinny Podcast with Trisha Burita. I'm a 15-year licensed practicing attorney in the state of Texas. I created Legal Skinny because when I've been invited to do educational seminars on different subjects in employment law, employers and HR professionals would often ask me, where can they find out a little more information on this or a little more information on that? Look, I get it. There's a lot of resources out there, but sometimes it's confusing and people are so busy. Sometimes people have only 30 or 15 or maybe even five minutes in their day to devote to learning something new. On this podcast, you'll hear me have discussions and interviews on topics relevant to employers. Disclaimer though, Legal Skinny is for entertainment and informational purposes only, not meant to provide legal advice and doesn't create an attorney-client relationship. Also remember, laws change or they differ by jurisdiction. So this is not a substitute for seeking legal counsel in your jurisdiction on the current law applicable to you. Across the United States, schools are beginning to reopen. While parents, students, teachers, and staff prepare for virtual distance learning, in-person learning, or some combination of both, employers are also bracing for the impact this will have on their workforce that are parents or guardians of school-aged children. Will they need time off? How much time? Is the how and when predictable? These are all questions that the employers have as school opens here in the fall. Today, my guest is both a friend and colleague, Jennifer Corso. Jennifer has been a licensed practicing attorney in the state of Ohio for 26 years. She represents management in labor and employment law. She is certified by the Ohio State Bar Association as a specialist in labor and employment law and has written several articles and spoken at numerous seminars to community business groups on employment law topics. When she's not tackling tricky employment law problems, she enjoys home projects, baking, and a love of travel. Since my topic is back to school with questions, I had to call Jennifer so we could chat about COVID-19 school questions on the real challenges schools and parents are facing and how that is trickling down to employers. We had an interesting chat, and so I hope you enjoy the Legal Skinny episode of Back to School with Questions. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to my podcast. Hello. Good to see you. It's so great to have you on here. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in Ohio? Sure. Um, Basically, I am an employment law attorney. I am a certified specialist um, under the Ohio State Bar Association, and this is pretty much all I've been doing for my entire practice, you know, which is over 25 years now. I work almost exclusively with small businesses, and by small, I mean small. I am talking, you know, maybe a handful of employees, maybe 10 or 20. Almost all my clients are under 100 employees. Most of them are under 50. 
And a lot of them don't have HR departments. So I do a lot of the HR work, you know, answering the questions, putting out the fires. And then I put my lawyer hat on when I need to. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're going to be having an interesting discussion today about the, the hottest topic, I think, right now in the United States, which is uh, back to school. And before we go much further and get too deep into it, I kind of want to acknowledge, you know, the gravity of the situation, which is that it's a sort of unknown uh, situation that everyone's being forced to walk into, right? Yeah. Uh, and this schools, and I've, I've heard some um, very interesting um, webinars with some of the heads of schools locally here, and I know we're going to talk a little more in specifics about that, but, you know, they acknowledge they have their safety plans, their procedures, but, you know, they have a tough road ahead of them, them, the parents, uh, the, the children, and how all this is going to sort of play out over the next couple of weeks and months. Yeah, and I think part of it also is that, you know, back in the spring when the schools shut down, I think most people really thought we were going to be back to relative normal by this point in time and that school would go on in the fall like planned. And I don't think anybody thought back in March or April that we would still be where we're at today. I mean, maybe the medical experts who really knew what they were doing, but the rest of us, I think we're living in denial. So, yeah, I joke on that other podcast that I do three B's on the law with uh, uh, Susan and Camille that, you know, I've had several people approach me that they just feel like once 2021's here, the COVID will be gone. And, uh, right. <laughs> Doesn't it have an expiration date? Isn't it on the can? I don't know. It's so, a, it's so logical to them. They I, <laughs> Maybe they got a text message out to the COVID-19 pandemic that I didn't see, but um, it's a... <laughs> It's an unknown, right, how long we like to think that we have some idea, you know, um, but at this point, you know, my heart goes out certainly to the parents, uh, the teachers, the heads of the schools, districts that are trying to sort all of this out, because it is uh, quite an entanglement and to um, go right into the unknown, you know, you can make as many procedures and policies as you want, but until it all starts to play out and they see how they're handling the cleaning, the disinfecting, the, the people, you know, potentially getting sick uh, and the quarantining. Um, I, I do not envy their position at this point. Not to mention trying to get a whole bunch of kindergartners and first graders to keep a mask on all day. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Even the adults don't like wearing them. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think you can put enough, uh, you know, um, uh, Mickey Mouse or... Uh, or uh, frozen characters on those masks to make them <laughs> more enviable for those those five-year-olds. So I, I totally feel you on that. Yeah. So let's talk about the the specific school districts that we're seeing kind of in our area and what they're trying to do, because it's kind of a mixed bag, at least around by me. But what are you seeing in Ohio? Well, the Ohio governor, uh, or Governor DeWine, uh, came out just recently in the past week or so and basically said, hey, I'm leaving it up to the school districts. So there is no one grand plan in Ohio um, as far as schools openings are concerned and you know what the schools are supposed to do, virtual versus remote versus hybrid, all of that. That is left up to the individual school districts. And then on top of all the public schools, you've got all the private schools who could do what they want anyways. So what I am personally seeing is everything. I have seen like the school district in my area has announced we are going to stay virtual for at least until some date in October. I don't know exactly. Just for 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 uh, 
full disclosure, I don't have children. So I don't keep track of the exact dates because I don't need to for my own. So, but, uh, so each school district is taking it differently. Other school districts I know have a combination. Uh, there's a HR professional that I work with very closely um, with a lot of shared clients. And she has started a spreadsheet for each school district keeping track because this is what her clients need to know because there's no business that has all of their employees living in one school district and right. one district only. So every employer out there is going to have to know what each school district is doing to some extent. Nobody's talking about that, but it, it's such no. a great point from the employer perspective this is a nightmare because yeah. you literally don't have any idea yeah. possibly the school districts that your employees are in. When would you have ever recorded that? When is that? You I mean, you may know the areas they live in, but you're still talking about, you know, um, uh, you know, potential situations where the, the kid is going to school with a divorced parent or, an, you know, at another school district. So you're still not really sure. And are you really going to be trying to figure all that out? It is quite yeah. a, it, that's interesting that she's making a spreadsheet. Smart girl. I'm sure that'll come in handy uh, for a lot of people that she's helping out. Yeah. She's been, she started this up about two weeks ago and it's keeps on changing, but that's what it is. So, but at least she has a reference guide. So when a, a, one of her clients calls her up and says, I've got an employee in this school district, chances are it will already be on her spreadsheet at some point. And that's interesting that you bring up the point of the uh, the public schools versus the private schools. Now, a lot of the private schools and the daycares, while they're all getting gearing up to, of course, start actual school school, they many of them have been open this whole time, you know, providing care to children, uh, already trying to follow all these protocols uh, set forth by the states um, or the local authorities. So. It isn't not a totally new concept, right? That school is happening. It's not like there's been no school, at least here in Texas, you know, we've had daycares open almost this whole time, especially for the essential workers. And now of course that's open to all. And so, uh, and some of them ranged up to, you know, children up to 10 years old or, or maybe um, a little bit younger than that. But it, it has been something that, uh, um, that they've been grappling with. But I think now we're looking at the big picture of the public schools and that all that you know, um, focus on how the school districts make decisions here in Texas. We've seen the same as you, a, a delayed opening to some extent for in-person and but starting virtual pretty soon here if they haven't started already in the school districts surrounding uh, Houston, the Harris County and other um, counties around this area. One thing we're also seeing here, which is interesting is some choices of parents to pick virtual learning over the the in-person when they got the choice sometimes the school districts are giving that hybrid choice yeah and some of the We're school, that here some of the school districts are doing this sort of a uh, couple weeks in person a couple weeks virtual uh, i've seen that across the us too i think that's an interesting uh choice as well so it's not all like you said it's not cookie cutter there's no clear design right. a lot of the school districts across the us are making these different choices we're also seeing parents, you know, make decisions to put the children in maybe private learning pods and hire tutors, you know, with a, a select number of individual kids or possibly putting them in, like you said, private schools or where maybe there's smaller classrooms and maybe less exposure potentially. Uh, the YMCA here is offering a place for the kids to watch their virtual classes. And, you know, they're even offering um, possible financial aid for individuals that are trying to 
you know, find a place for their kids. Cause some, some of the school districts have gone all virtual here. Uh, it just depends on which school district you're talking about. So that, you know, what, for people that still have to work, that's something that, you know, is an interesting resource that's developed here. Yeah. I think the, the school districts of the districts that I've been keeping track of, there are many that are all virtual, but for now. So we don't know, like they just, they're giving a date in October or something for right now. And then they'll say they will reevaluate. But for a lot of those that are offering both the in-school um, remote and in-school learning, they're saying to the parents, you have to make a choice and you have to stick with that choice for the next two months. So there's no bouncing back and forth, which I get because that would just be impossible to plan for from a classroom standpoint. But I can't imagine being a parent faced with that choice of, I have to make a decision for my child now that's going to last for two months in an environment where things change on a daily or weekly basis. So I just, I can't imagine how people are making these decisions. It's but, been, I think it's been really hard. I've heard some parents say, you know, they stayed up till midnight the night before, you know, or the deadline was like midnight and they stayed right up to it, you know, debating it, you know, with their family, they were trying to figure it out. It's not, again, and not an easy decision. Of course, the school districts are trying to make it as safe as possible to bring in uh, the the children that are going to be coming back to face-to-face -face, um, learning and how that's all going to look. But uh, it's, it's certainly something, of course, that um, we'll continue to be watched and, and we'll play out as we see what this looks like. You know, as I was talking to you off the air, you know, there was an article that I saw on CNN where they were talking about how, you know, um, I think it was a, around 2000 teachers and students and just recently with some of the schools that have opened mm -hmm. are quarantined based off of 200 or something uh, individuals that had um, tested positive for COVID-19. So uh, that's kind of another whole issue, what this looks like with the quarantine jumping in and out and making it, again, sort of uh, an unpredictable factor. That I think this probably will be uh, the most, uh, the biggest challenge for families, for employers uh, as as we move forward, because I think you can look at um, all the different things that could happen. You could have someone get sick. You could have someone be quarantined. You could have someone need to care for their child and all the different pieces of the FFCRA kind of come into play. Um, and you just don't know and you can't predict which way it's going to go. And so back in the spring, of course, when the schools shut down and we, you know, there was this transfer to virtual learning which I've heard some of the school districts, uh, heads of the school districts have, around here have talked about the challenge uh, <laughs> to the teachers, right? Because they, here you are, you're, you, you maybe been, you know, teaching in-person kids for years and all of a sudden overnight, you have a virtual, virtual set of kids, you know, and what are you supposed to do with them? It was not planned. There was, you know, and you know how they like to plan. So uh, overnight they were, they were faced with having to figure out how to teach children in a virtual capacity, um, how to get them materials. Many of them didn't have technology, uh, which, you know, all of that stuff now, they've tried to fix some of those things and those issues. But certainly when all of that happened and that was happening to teachers and schools on our employer side here, right? All of a sudden they have all these employees that have children at home and, and they needed leave. And that's where we saw the Families First Coronavirus Response Act come in um, to play uh, heavily, of course, uh, that was signed into law by President Trump on March 18th and then put into effect on April 1st. So 
the real, um, and we could talk, I know you and I could chat all day about that law because of all the uh, twists and turns about it and the Department of Labor's play in it. But let's focus on number five. Let's go over that, Jennifer, because that really does play into the school piece. Okay. And so people know what we're talking about. Number five really is what the Department of Labor did is they listed six reasons um, in which you can qualify for leave under the FFCRA, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. And so the first few really deal with somebody who has COVID themselves um, or has been exposed and needs to quarantine for it. But the number five that we're talking about is um, where the EFMLA portion of the FFCRA comes in. So the expanded FMLA rights. And that's if somebody needs to stay home from work because their child's school or daycare has closed and they need to care for that child because they are not in school. And it's closed for COVID-related reasons. That was very important this summer where there was a lot of difference between my daycare shut down just because versus my daycare is unable to open because of COVID. So if somebody's daycare, you know, just went out of business anyways, you know, not due to COVID or anything, then that wouldn't have qualified them. So what we're dealing right now with going back to school is really the school aspect of it. I'm going to leave the daycare aspect of it alone because we're not really talking about that so much. That's not triggered by the school year as much. So, but number five is, you know, do I get paid time off because my kid can't go to school because the school is closed due to COVID. So that's really what it comes in. If the answer is yes, they are entitled to up to 12 weeks of this EFMLA. It's technically two weeks under the paid sick leave and then 10 weeks under the EFMLA, but it comes out to 12 weeks total. And But it's not at full pay. It's only up to two thirds pay. And there's some limitations on that as well for high earners. But in general, it's a two-thirds pay situation. So this is something that they have to consider. The big part about this for parents who took advantage of this leave back in the spring is that it's 12 weeks total for the year. And that goes through December 31st. This law expires on December 31st. You joked earlier about we're not going to have coronavirus in 2021. See, well, apparently Congress didn't think so. Congress agreed so. with me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, Point, Jennifer. So this, so this leave does expire. Um, so if somebody, if somebody's kid was told, you know, in mid-April, oh, by the way, spring break is next week, and you're not coming back, and they used five or six weeks of this in the spring, they only have you know, six or seven weeks left to, to use. And on top of that, if by any chance that employee had used regular FMLA in the prior year with their employer, then FMLA and EFMLA are a total of 12 weeks. And most employers these days go on a rolling calendar, a rolling year, not a calendar year. So let's say I had, you know, knee surgery, you know, back in November and I needed four weeks off. 
of work. Okay, that's four weeks. And then let's say that my kid, my, the kid I don't have, um, had to take um, time or had to go to remote learning, you know, for all of May, let's say another four weeks. So I said, okay, I need the EFMLA for the four weeks there because I need to be home with my kid while they're remote learning. Now it turns out the remote learning again, but I only have four weeks left. I don't have 12 weeks. I don't even have the eight weeks. So because I use some of it for regular FMLA. So this is a nightmare record keeping situation for HR professionals. Okay. HR professionals better become Excel spreadsheet wizards. I hope they were all doing that this summer, of course, in the free time that they had, um, because they really have to be tracking all of it. You know, for most companies that are subject to FMLA, they've got record keeping um, software for these things or some sort of tracking system internally. But was that set up then to add on the EFMLA on top of it? Probably not. Some people may have been able, you know, to just get it in somehow, but chances are they were doing it differently. But this all has to be considered. So it's, there's a lot there to think about. And then on top of all that, this applies to employers with less than 50 employees, which the FMLA doesn't normally. So now you've got really small businesses that are subject to emergency family medical leave act where they've never even had to deal with it before because they have fewer than 50. Um, now, they have some exemptions that they could utilize, but it's not an automatic exemption. It's only if there's an undue hardship. So chances are they're, they're still going to have to comply with this. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, Jennifer. The, the, the challenge to these under 50 um, employees uh, employers has has been a, it's been it's been a huge learning curve for them to be thrown in, you know, within it happened all within a week where Congress you know, went back and forth and made this decision and passed this act and you know then mm -hmm. they had a week or two before it was completely in effect and then they needed to know how do you deal with leave we're going to talk about intermittently but how do you deal with all these different pieces of FMLA whereas you know some of the employers at least had familiarity with it if you were normally using general FMLA. So the differences mm -hmm. between that, let's kind of chat about that. If normal FMLA, right, mm -hmm. uh, an employee must work for a covered employer, which is an employer generally with over 50 employees, right? Yeah. Uh, works 1,000, the employee must have worked 1,250 hours during the 12 months prior to the start of leave. So these aren't So it's new pretty much a part-time employee at that point, like a 20-hour week employee, more or less. Yeah, so. not new employees that just come on and they get access right. to this FMLA. Uh, it's an unpaid leave, unlike the FFCRA. And mm -hmm. then uh, the employee would need to have worked at a location, again, with the 50 or more employees within 75 miles and have worked for the employer for 12 months. So um, that's different than the FFCRA, right? Which was basically like, let's just turn that all around and, and, and take out all that stuff, basically, um, yeah. when we're looking for who gets leave. And I, I get that it was created in the, in the thought to, to, um, to go and try to reach as many individual. Now, I don't, I'm not sure where the whole under 500 employees, uh, where that was coming from, but um, the FFCRA. My understanding on yeah. that is I think they figured that the very large employers, you know, the GM Ford's Cleveland clinics of the world, you know, with thousands of employees, so many of those employers have, paid leave packages 
you know, because they're big enough and they can afford it. And so this might not be necessary. I probably shouldn't have thrown Cleveland Clinic in there because they're a healthcare provider. But you know what I'm talking about. Big, 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 big companies with, you know, over 500, thousands of employees. So many of them already have paid leave packages. That was my understanding as to why they exempted that. Um, or they've got the money and they can figure it out. Whereas the mom and pops are the ones that are going to be hit um, hard by this. And let me speak to that for just one second, because just in case anybody who's tuning in isn't familiar, yes, the employees get that paid leave that I talked about earlier, that two thirds pay for up to 12 weeks, but it's paid back to the employer via tax credits. So it's pretty much an off the top, above the line deduction from their payroll taxes. So while the employer does have to keep them on the regular payroll initially, they do get that money back relatively quickly in the whole scheme of things. So it might be a short-term hardship from a cash flow standpoint, but it's not like they have to wait a year to get it back because most employers do quarterly payroll taxes. So that's going to work out that way. So it is something that the government repays the employer for the costs of that leave. And I think that's important for the small business owners to understand. And that's the big difference between FMLA and EFMLA. FMLA, unless the employer wants to, FMLA is unpaid. So it doesn't matter what the reason for it, doesn't matter the health condition or the duration, it is unpaid unless the employer voluntarily provides paid leave. So that's the right. Difference. And then of course, that the employee needs to have only been with you 30 days, which was a big yeah. deal. Yeah. So and then that, they're eligible for the paid sick leave under the FFCRA, this EFMLA. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and so that, and that we're not talking about the paid sick leave, the other, other reasons that Jennifer was talking about, but just for the EFMLA, they need that 30 days. The right. other, other leaves are available immediately. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about really the, um, the choices employers have, one of them could be when they're trying to deal with leave and individual employees needing to be home because their children are home. You know, what about telework? How does that play into this leave? Do they need to give EFMLA um, if the employee could possibly telework? And telework, that's something new with all of this. This is the first time the government has ever more or less mandated that telework opportunities need to be provided if possible. And this is where I think small business really had to change it's because so many of these small businesses, you know, especially the very typical mom and pop places that may have be, been family owned businesses on their second or third generations, that's a lot of my client base. And they do things today the same way their parents did them and the same way their parents did them, which means when people have asked in the last few years about, hey, is there any way I can telecommute or work from home a couple days a week? The answer almost universally was no, just out of the rationalization of we've never done it before and we don't want to start now. Well, now all of a sudden, everybody is practically forced to. I mean, here in Ohio, that was part of the government mandate on the reopening, that if employers, if employees were able to work from home, employers were to grant that and keep as many people out of the office as possible. That was one of the guidelines for the reopenings that occurred in May. So this is part of it. So same type of, of rationale. If you can telework, then you can telework from home 
And so you can be home while your kid is at home and you can care for your child, but we still expect you to do your job. Now, not everybody is going to be able to do that. It's going to depend on the age of the child. It's going to depend on the number of children. It's going to depend on the child's own learning abilities and ability to focus. So there's going to have to be some interaction here between the employer and the employee, some discussion as to whether or not telework is possible. And if so, how is telework possible? Because this is where sort of going into a different topic part of it is where the, the leave doesn't have to be all in an eight hour workday block. So let's say that, you know, I'm, let's, let's say that I'm an HR generalist um, for a company. And I say, you know, I've got a 10 year old, they can't be in school, they're remote learning. I want FFCRA leave on the EFMLA and I can telework, but my child is going to need a lot of my attention during their school day. So maybe I can say, well, you know, my work doesn't really depend on the timing of other people. So I'm going to get up early and I'm going to put in a couple hours between maybe six and eight o'clock in the morning. And then from eight to 10, I'm going to let my, I'm going to be with my kid and help them out. And then I'm going to go back to teleworking for a few hours or whatever, or something like that. And somehow during the day, I figure out how to put in my eight hours. And that's great. So that allows me to telework, but I can also have this little intermittent leave here and there. Or let's say there's just no way I can put in an eight hour day while helping my kid with schoolwork. In that case, then I can take true intermittent leave where it's, I'm only going to be getting in six hours a day or four hours a day, and I'll take the leave for the other hours that round me out to eight. So there's choices there but it's got to be a discussion. Yeah. And that's great, Jennifer. You're talking about the intermittent versus the block leave, which, uh, you know, I always talk about it in general FMLA circumstances where you're needing to take block leave. Some, an employee comes to you and says, you know what, I uh, have to have a surgery, a back surgery. I'm going to go ahead and need to take off, you know, a week for the surgery and three to four weeks of, of full recovery before I can return to the job. So I'm going to need off a month. I have a doctor's note. The employer grants that and says, okay, you get employee, you get a, you get block FMLA leave here. You get these four weeks in chunk. It looks very different than intermittently, which of course is a little bit more challenging would be probably the nicest way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Frustrating is probably the way a lot of employers feel. Uh, trying to track intermittent leave um, because it's sort of like you're like you were just explaining. That's a great example. It's kind of all over the place. I mean, I have what will be two five year olds at home. I can I can fully attest. I can't work at all when they're around. <laughs> they have a, a a way, of course, of needing a lot of attention for all kinds of things. <laughs> so work is not something that's easy to do. So I understand relate to the parents, you know, who are trying to figure out this situation. So the employer does have to be open with that and work with them on how or what the intermittent schedule will be. And you know, it may they may need to be flexible. That's what the Department of Labor said. If the employee says, I think this is how I can do it, and they try it and it doesn't work and the employee comes back, the employer shouldn't be surprised that, you know, the employee is having a, a problem or trying to adjust to whatever it is the schedule is. Of course, you know, this virtual learning, they are, I am hearing that 
they expect it to be different than what they did in the spring because there was no plan in the spring and they got plans now. So they actually anticipate that they'll hold actual class times. And that, I mean, we'll see how this all goes, but that's their idea. That's their plans, right? So, so maybe employees will be able to work more than, you know, when before it was, it was a little bit, um, I think, uh, chaotic, right? Um, right. Certainly, <laughs> certainly, if you watch social media, I all the parents I saw were talking about how chaotic the uh, at home schooling was. So, uh, you know, quite a challenge. Um, but the intermittent leave, which is where you take, you know, chunks of time, like you're talking about, uh, is something that the employer is going to have to sort of work through if they can't get that telework option. And, um, or if they have a position that's not telework, right, Jennifer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know what? Bottom line, this really isn't a bad thing. I've had a number of clients over the summer tell me that, you know, this working from home, it's it's working out for them. You know, they like it and they're going to try and build it in on a permanent basis, even post pandemic, because like I've got a client that has, I don't know, 20 customer service reps. And so, you know, they have to have physical space for 20 people and 20 computers and 20 phones and all this sort of stuff. And now they're realizing that most of each of them have been working from home all this time. So when all this COVID stuff is over, they may never have 20 customer service reps back in the office at the same time. They could shrink that space. They could only maybe have five or 10 customer service spaces. And each person comes in one day a week, you know, just so that there's you know, eyes on them and there's some interaction with the supervisors and things of that sort. But why can't these people continue to work from home? It benefits the employees. Most of them like it, at least for now. Um, and the employer can get some benefits out of it too. So, you know, if I were a commercial real estate person, I'd be worried. <laughs> um, <so. laughs> oh, okay, we could go on and on about yeah. telework. Yeah, it's so, it's, but it's, it's interesting thing, and we'll have to see, yeah. you know, how many really keep it. Like, uh, plug for one of my earlier episodes, episode one, the first one I did uh, with my guest and good friend Jane Lynn, uh, who helps uh, transition, you know, employees, um, employers helping them transition their employees to a telework force in a more permanent fashion. She, you know, she's a big advocate for it. She talks about the benefits of it and that there's a way to do it and there's a way to keep the communication open, there's a way to be successful and there's a way to cut that overhead. So, uh, uh, well, we're not in commercial real estate and so we won't go, go there quite yet. You know, we don't want anyone hurting now, Jennifer. So they'll figure their way out of it. Okay, let's, let's, All right, let's go back to the EFMLA. <laughs> let's do that. Okay, so let's, let's talk about scenarios. Okay, so I got okay. a scenario for you. So employee A, let's call her Alice, okay, lives with her family in a school district that decided no face-to-face -face return of students for the teachers. It will only be virtual learning. So this appears to fit within the number five leave reason under the FFCRA. Is that right? Yes. Yes, exactly. All right. All right. Now, just a caveat onto that, let's talk about employee B. So we'll call him Bill. He's in a school district that decided to hybrid and let parents choose in person or virtual. Uh, most here, like I think you were kind of talking about, there's some commitment that needs to be made. If you pick virtual, you can't just jump back in into regular schools. So like here, well, some districts, but yeah, everyone's different. But let's right. say that's the case. Let's say that's the case here. Okay. You know, once he's committed to virtual, his yeah. family's committed. They're nine weeks into the virtual. Uh, that's the commitment. So 
Bill is concerned for the health of the child or someone um, in his household. And so, you know, their family chooses the virtual option for their kids. And so now both employee Alice and employee Bill come to their employer and request FFCRA leave under reason number five. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So here's the thing. The key thing is, is in Bill's situation, there is a choice and the school is open. The plain language of the FFCRA says that the school has to be closed due to COVID reasons. So that fits Alice's situation. Her school is closed, they're offering virtual only. But in Bill's situation, they have, the parents have a choice. So the school is not closed. So right now, you know, here's the thing. The Department of Labor has put out tons of guidance, FAQs, regulations, all this sort of stuff that basically does all these, that's a Q&A type thing for mostly on their pages that gives the nitty gritty as to how to interpret the FFCRA. This issue so far is not addressed. That, that's it's what I'm talking be, about here, Jennifer. I'm hoping yeah. that the DOL listens to my podcast right. and addresses this immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could, I'm, and I can't imagine that they haven't gotten these questions yet, either by, you know, from the politicians or from people writing in. But, you know, from a practical standpoint, Congress just went home until September. So the law itself is not going to get changed before school starts. Can the Department of Labor enact some guidance on this and say that partially closed or given the choice counts? I don't know. I don't know if they can. I don't know if they will. But this is something that could change tomorrow or it could change next week or it could change over Labor Day weekend. We don't know right now. So right now, it's a gray area. Um, and I would, I, I hate to drive people to the attorneys, but if a small business owner is faced with this question from an employee, they really should talk to their employment attorney. Um, because right now, first of all, we're not giving legal advice here. We're just giving information. But this information is changing very quickly. So you could listen to this podcast today and then tomorrow there could be a DOL regulation or FAQ on this. So because um, we did the podcast, Jennifer, that's right. I think it's a gray area. I think, you know, employers have to be cautious about when you mm -hmm. deny leave, it creates some exposure and liability. And so that's the one yeah. thing they have to do. And if they need to seek some counsel in regards to that, they'll have to, if this, if they're, they have a bill scenario, then that will be where it goes until we do get hopefully some more further guidance from the DOL. Uh, I think that's where we'll leave it uh, on that one because it is sort of an unknown, but it is a tricky situation. I think it is mm -hmm. going to be something that they're trying to figure out um, as we go into the school's opening, of course. So let's let's switch back now to bringing the employee back from leave because some of these, as you mentioned, might not might be out of FMLA leave. They may need to be returning. Um, and so how do we bring back an employee normally and under regular FMLA? Let's start there because it is very similar. I think it's easy, easier to talk about how FFCRA has a slight change to that versus your normal FMLA because that's really um, the basis of, of what this sort of returning the individual to a, a same similar equivalent position. 
Right. So the FMLA is a, an almost guaranteed hold of the position. There are a few exceptions. I don't want to get into all that, but it's an almost guaranteed hold of the position for up to 12 weeks. And it's exactly that. Now, if in some bizarre situation, if um, there are layoffs and that position would have been part of the layoff, well, that's a different thing. Or if there's a reorganization and that position is just eliminated because of a reorganization that would have taken place, whether or not that person was on leave, you know, there's then you can say, okay, well, here we're offering you a similar position, things of that sort. But for the most part, FMLA says you get your job back. And that's the whole point of the leave when it came in in 93 or whenever that was. Um, that was the whole point was job security for people who have to take take off time due to serious health conditions. So the EFMLA is similar, but not quite as absolute, I guess. Is that a good way of putting it? I think it's interesting because when you get in, and it's just not just EFMLA, but when you get into the FFCRA, all the leaves, you're mm -hmm. supposed to, you know, that you have a right, not just under the FMLA, but all the reasons to come and, and, and return and get a same or equivalent position. So yeah. um, it, it's, the right is there. And that's why I think it, it, you know, when you talk about general FMLA, that's why I talk about it first, because of course that law came first before the FFCRA. So they were, I think, leaning on that return to equivalent or same um, position when they wrote the FFCRA. It was in their head that that would be a similar way to yeah. return the worker and and try to find um, a possibility of putting them in a position where they would have the same pay, benefits, working conditions, privileges, and status uh, right. in order to, it, well, it could may not be the exact same job. It, it's got to be um, pretty darn similar, right? Right, um, right. And otherwise, and is, you may not meet that standard. Yeah. And this is where, like, the small business exemption comes in, where, so if you've got less than 50 employees, then you can claim a small business business exemption to the EFMLA. And but what you have to be able to prove basically is that there's going to be some severe economic hardship to the company by granting this leave. And that's going to be hard because, okay, even pre-COVID, when I would talk to my business clients, my small business clients, if they were faced with, let's say, an ADA accommodation request where somebody says, I need two months off um, because of my disability. And they had to determine, was that an undue hardship or not? And a lot of the, the knee-jerk reaction is, is, I can't be without this employee for two weeks or for two months. No, I, I, I can't grant this leave. You know, I'd have to replace them. And I'd say to them, okay, from a realistic standpoint, how long is it going to take you to get a job posting out? You know, whether it's on Indeed or Monster or wherever you post these days, to sift through the resumes, to interview, to second interview, to offer a job, to wait for the preferred candidate to quit their current job, give two or three weeks notice to come on, and then they've got to learn the new job and get to the same level as training as the person they're replacing. Now, if somebody can tell me that's going to happen in under a month, I'm going to say you're lying. Okay, six weeks, maybe. But then at that point, if all the differences is another two weeks to get the person back who's already held that position, that's not an undue hardship. So I would look at the same type of, you know, evaluation under the EFMLA before a small business says, no, I can't do it because it's going to put me in financial ruin. Really? How long is it going to take for you to replace that person? Yeah. yeah I mean, you some, gotta look at it. some of them, and you know, and 
and there's Jennifer's, uh, um, we're giving like a very general overview of that. There's of course very specific things that they want you to meet, but in a general sense, it is, it's, it's going to be difficult to show, to, mm -hmm. to show unless the business is literally almost shutting down due to these employees taking this type of leave. Right. So I think that's a really good point. I think when we're looking at bringing back employees under the FFCRA, which is a little different than bringing them back under general FMLA, you know, there's the, the discussion um, in the CFRs about an employee that's a key employee um, may be denied restoration following EFMLA leave, um, but if doing so is necessary to prevent substantial and grievous economic injury to the operations of the employer, which sounds very similar to what you just went over again, yeah. Jennifer, you, you better be able to like document that and show that because you could be sued, right, for um, the in that situation, and then you'll be you'll be stuck with having to prove it. So it's not something to take lightly. There's mm -hmm. also this other little tricky part that I wanted to talk about with you that with the FFCRA, they, they put this 25 employee under um, other exception and how to deal with um, not bringing the employee back in the exact um, uh, same or similar equivalent position would, would occur. And they said mm -hmm. in the CFRs, they talk about they may deny job restoration to an employee under the FMLA if all of the following conditions apply. The employee took leave for childcare reasons, okay? So the number five. <laughs> then exactly what we're talking about here today, which is why I want to talk about it. The position held by the employee when taking leave no longer exists because of economic conditions or other changes caused by public health emergency, which we can, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic would meet during the leave period. The employer makes reasonable efforts to restore the employee to an equivalent position, whatever those are, whatever reasonable efforts are, which we don't have a lot of guidance on that right now. But um, and if the employer's reasonable efforts, this is an interesting part, to restore the employee to an equivalent position fail, the employer makes reasonable efforts to contact the employee if an equivalent position becomes available during a one-year period beginning on the earlier of the end of the employee's leave or 12 weeks after the employee's leave started. Yeah, just bring them back. <laughs> it's so much easier. <laughs> well, if they want to go into that and grapple that, they, that is what it is. I think we'll we'll leave it at that. I think we've talked enough tricky lawyer stuff or whatever. Would you like to do the legal skinny rundown with me? I would love to do the legal skinny rundown. She's like, these are all the easy questions. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Beach or mountains? Uh, if I can just be in a hammock in the shade. A beach, but as long as I don't have to climb the mountain, I'd go on the mountain. <laughs> that is such a lawyer answer, Jennifer. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not hauling my own butt up a mountain. Somebody <laughs> else gets me up there. I love the mountain. <laughs> okay. All right. Elvis or the Beatles? Beatles. Most influential book you've read? I don't know if it's the most, but one that I just read recently is called um, "The Overstory," and it's hard to explain it's about trees but it's not about trees it's about our it's 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 just it's really hard to explain but it's a fabulous book it's a long book the author is richard powers and it really makes you rethink what we're doing to this world um as far as from an ecological standpoint um and it's it's, it's about trees it's about so, trees. Got it's about it. Trees. <laughs> it's just like a, a hippie granola thing. <laughs> it is sort of, but it is the the it's excellent writing, and um, I just 
I could do a whole podcast just on the book. Well, my, <laughs> so. my dad's an environmental engineer and he loves trees. He's, I've spent my whole life with him pointing out get, this get tree or book. that tree. Trees I thought were the same. He would pull the leaves off and go, no, clearly it's this type of tree versus that type of tree. So um, uh, maybe he needs that book. I'll have to he check that, that out. Book, yes. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great. Okay. So uh, dead or alive, what famous person would you invite to dinner? <sighs> you know, I'd love to go like, you know, really serious, but right now, God, I want like Bill Murray or Jon Stewart, you know, I just want somebody that's going to make me laugh. Um, on the other hand, God, I would love to have dinner with Julia Childs. So, but, uh, so, but <laughs> I'm keeping it, board, I know, but, but I just, I just need something entertaining and I, I don't want, you know, I, no offense, Mahatma Gandhi, but I, I just can't deal with that right now. <laughs> so. Well, who doesn't want to have dinner with Bill Murray? He sounds right. like um, such an <laughs> interesting character. <laughs> All right. Finally, one minute or less, what's the skinny on back to school for employers? Okay. Be prepared. All right. Um, you need to review your employee documents. Who has already taken leave? Who has leave left? Who is going to need the leave? You know, you can figure this out now, but also you need to tell the employees they need to be talking to you about this now. School has practically started, if not already started for some people. So it's then by the time this airs, you need to have this discussion. Um, be flexible. Work with the employees. Do what you can. You've already hired them and trained them. They're worth your investment to work with on this. And then as much as you prepare, like I said, be prepared for the plans to change. So make sure you've got a plan B, C, and D, you know, out there. So just in case everything changes because things are going to change. That's the one thing we know. Things will change. I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So if someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, the firm's website, um, the firm is named Petronzio Schneer. We have nicknamed it Unpronounceable and Unspellable. So um, the firm website is ps-law.com. And you can just come to the website and see my bio there. My email address is jcorso at ps-law.com. You can find me on Facebook under Jennifer Corso, attorney at Petronzio Schneer. I'm also on LinkedIn. So that's how you can find me. Any of those different ways you can contact and connect with Jennifer. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for being on this uh, podcast. I, I do think it's it's a hot topic. We debated it. Uh, we we came up with some answers to those questions that I, I had posed for us. And then, of course, the, the unanswerables will just have to stay tuned. But that's the legal skinny on back to school with questions. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Legal Skinny Podcast. Do not forget to subscribe to get future podcast episodes. Also check out LegalSkinny.com to join our newsletter and get details on all the educational resources we offer the employer. Also, disclaimer, remember Legal Skinny is for entertainment and informational purposes only, not meant to provide legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Laws change or they differ by jurisdiction. So also remember, this is not a substitute for seeking legal counsel in your jurisdiction on the current law applicable to you.